Today's scripture can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 6 through 16, and it can be found on page 953 of the Blue Pew Bibles. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? For we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Please pray with me once more before we look at this passage. Father in heaven, we have punctuated our service today with prayer. Because even as you have called us into your presence uh, to worship you, you have loosed our tongues and given us words to speak, um, petitions to bring, uh, praises to bring, confessions uh, to make. Um, likewise, now, as we come to your word, we pray again. And Holy Spirit, even as we have uh, invoked your presence and have, have said um, that without you uh, present among us, as you have promised to be, we are not capable of worship, worshiping you. We, we also say now that without you in our hearts, um, we're not capable uh, of, of, of understanding your word, uh, of having it penetrate to our hearts, not just uh, rattle around in our brains, but, but, but sink into the depths of our hearts to change us, uh, to melt our hearts, to give us hearts uh, that worship uh, God alone, uh, because he alone uh, is worthy of that worship. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray uh, for the things that Paul is talking about here uh, in this passage, uh, that you would reveal to us the deep things of God, that you would reveal to us God's heart for his people, the holiness that he longs uh, to see in us, the gifts that he gives to bring that about uh, in our lives. Would that happen uh, even here in this service? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock 
and our Redeemer. Amen. This past spring, we wrapped up our study in the Gospel of John, and, and we said uh, repeatedly all the way through that study, stretching back three years, um, that in the Gospel of John, when John talks about the glory of God, what he's most often referring to is the cross. Uh, and so now, having finished uh, our study in the Gospel, where that glory is put on display, the glory of God revealed in the least likely of places, the hated shameful, cursed even, cross of our Lord Christ. Uh, we've now shifted to looking at a letter where Paul, right at the outset, is working out some of the implications of that, the implications of the fact that that is where God has chosen to reveal himself. Um, we've already seen uh, repeatedly um, how Paul has said that the fact that God chose to reveal his glory in the cross of Christ has turned everything upside down, has completely changed our understanding of what power is, of what wisdom is. And remember, he's talking to a people who are very conscious um, of power and of wisdom and who live in a place where if you wanted to make a name for yourself, Corinth was where you went to make a name for yourself by your own power, by, by wisdom, eloquence, uh, artful rhetoric. Paul has applied this uh, he's, he's, he's talked about um, how uh, the message that he has brought is a message that appears to be foolishness and weakness, but in fact is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's applied that uh, also to the Corinthians themselves and to his own preaching. And now as we continue uh, and go to the next step in his argument, he's going to ask the question, so wait, if, if what God has done turns wisdom on its head, does that mean that wisdom is of no use? Is there no such thing as wisdom? And as we'll see, um, that's not what he thinks. He doesn't think there's no wisdom. Uh, he thinks, in fact, there is wisdom. There is God's wisdom. Um, and then the question that that begs is, well, then how do you get it? If wisdom doesn't take the form that the world expects, and if we don't acquire it the way the world thinks, how do we get it? And what we're going to see in this passage um, is that God reveals his wisdom to us, not simply by giving us information, but by giving us himself, by giving us his own spirit. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, in this passage uh, today. So right off the bat, Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. So right away, he's saying, yes, there is such a thing as wisdom. Um, for, for Paul, maturity uh, means basically what we talk about uh, in this church all the time. We talk about growing up into maturity in the likeness of Christ, right? Growing up into maturity in him. That's what Paul has in mind about the mature, those, those uh, who exhibit Christ-likeness. Um, what is this, uh, as it were, secret and hidden wisdom, a wisdom not of this age or of the rulers of this age um, that they didn't understand, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. He says, well, this has already been made clear, right? The mystery uh, that Paul is talking about, the, the hidden, the secret wisdom of God is salvation through a crucified Messiah. And uh, we've already talked uh, for several weeks now uh, about how shocking that is, about how scandalous that is, about how nobody in the ancient world, neither Jew nor Greek, would have looked at a crucified Messiah and said, that's where to find wisdom and power, right? Greeks wanted wisdom in the sense of 
mastery of life. And if you're being crucified, that's the opposite of having mastered life. Um, Jews, on the other hand, wanted a Messiah to, to lead in power and would have said that someone hanging on a cross has been rejected by God. It's the last person, you would think, is the Messiah of God. And so Paul has already talked about how salvation through a crucified Messiah is a stumbling block to Jews uh, and to Greeks, but is the very place where God has chosen uh, to reveal himself. Um, he cites this passage. It's kind of a mashup of a couple different passages in Isaiah, but it mostly comes from Isaiah 64, where he says, What no eye has seen, uh, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, these are the very things, I'm inserting that, these are the very things that God has prepared for those who love him. The very things that God wants to reveal uh, to his people are the things that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. And that gives us a little bit of a clue as to why the rulers of this age, as he calls them, have missed this. That language of eyes that don't see uh, and ears that don't hear and hearts that don't feel, that's most commonly used in Isaiah to talk about idolatry. Isaiah says when you bow down to a, a graven image, right, to a, to a, when you worship a creature instead of the creator, you're worshiping something with eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear and hearts that don't feel and like it or not, you will become like what you worship. We become like what we worship. And so idolatry blinds us. Idolatry stops our ears. Idolatry keeps our hearts made of stone instead of the heart of flesh that we sang about earlier today. So what is Paul's solution to this? Right? Is he simply going to say, so stop worshiping idols, right? Stop worshiping these things that you're bowing down to. In our modern day context, stop worshiping money. Stop worshiping your job. Um, stop worshiping your family and its success. These are all good things, but they're not worthy of worship. They can't see you. They can't hear you. They can't help you. They can't save you like God can. Is he just going to say, stop doing that? The problem with, with, with that approach, if he were to just to say, stop worshiping idols, um, is that, that begs the question, how can that which is dead bring itself to life? Right? If, our, if, we have, if we have hearts made of stone, if our heart itself is the thing that's broken, how is that going to fix itself? How would we just turn on our own? Remember in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul starts off uh, with the very bad news that you were dead in your trespasses. And, and the turn in that chapter, when he gets to, to, to uh, verse 4 of Ephesians 2, the turn in that chapter, it goes from you were dead in your trespasses, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. It's not, but you had just enough in yourself to be able to raise yourself up from the dead. The dead can't raise themselves. The dead need to be raised. It depends on God's mercy. It depends on God's grace to us. And what Paul is talking about in the rest of this passage 
is about the glorious, wondrous, lavish means by which God does that work in us. Not just by giving us information, but by giving us himself, by pouring his spirit out on his church and working in our hearts. If you look at verse verse 10, after the, the Isaiah citation, Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So this is a major distinction between the way that the world thinks of wisdom and the way that Paul is going to talk about wisdom. Right? Again, Paul is not saying there's no such thing as wisdom, but he's drawing a major distinction. Wisdom, according to the world, is a matter of technique. It is a matter of mastery. It is a matter of you acquiring the skills to pull yourself up right, and to be able to master life. But for Paul, wisdom only comes by means of the Spirit himself being given to you and working change in your heart. Verse 10 is probably the hinge of the whole passage here um, where he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And then he draws this simple analogy, right? Who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? He basically says, he's essentially saying, nobody knows what's going on inside of your head except you yourself, right? And, and even if you were trying to explain to someone what's going on inside your head, we all know that there's a lot of things going on inside of our heads and our hearts that we can't quite articulate, and so the best explanation we could give wouldn't quite communicate to another person what we're thinking and what we're feeling. And what he's saying is that God, wanting to reveal to us the things of God, the mind of God, the heart of God, wanting us to really clearly know exactly how he thinks and feels about us, has not simply given us information. He has given us himself. This is a little bit like, I think we've used this example before in another sermon. I can't quite remember. Um, but this one must come up often enough. If you were going to climb Mount Everest, there'd be two ways to prepare for that. There'd be two ways to, or there'd be two ways to tackle it, right? One is you could get all the books, you could get all the maps, you could get the best GPS technology, right? Let's assume that none of that's gonna fail on the mountain, right? I would not be terribly comfortable with all the training, all the time I would need, I would not be terribly comfortable trying to tackle Mount Everest with just a map and a compass and a GPS. But send me with a Sherpa. Send me with a person who has done it before. Send me with a living human being to accompany me. And then I have a chance of making it up that mountain. That's a, that's a partial analogy for what's going on here. Um, that God has not just given us information, but that he has given us himself, um, his, own, his own spirit. So let's talk about what it is that Paul is saying and then why it matters. On the front of your bulletin, I put that Karl Barth quote. This is one of Karl Barth's favorite things to say. 
that God reveals himself through himself. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here. God reveals himself through himself. And the reason that that matters is, is, is not simply that we go from not having the good news, not having information, to having information. Paul is saying we go from being dead to being alive. Because remember, in our worship of idols, in our, in our fallen worship of that which is not God, of the gifts that he's given us instead of the giver, it's as though we are dead. We are effectively dead in our trespasses. The change that is wrought in our hearts by the Spirit is not simply getting smarter. It's going from being dead to being alive. This fits with the way the Spirit is described all through Scripture, right? I mean, go back to Genesis 2-7. Remember that um, in both the Old and New Testament, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word uh, for breath and spirit is the same word. Uh, and suddenly some of these passages open up. Genesis 2-7 talks about God breathing into the man, and the man becomes a living being, right? That breath of God uh, is, what, is what gives life. Um, Jesus, in promising to send the Spirit, he said, the Spirit's going to remind you of everything that I taught you. The Spirit is going to point you to me as I'm glorifying the Father. And then, at the end of John's Gospel, after Jesus is resurrected, when he, when, he, when he encounters the disciples, one of the things that it says is that he breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. Right? And it's, a, it's a deliberate echo of that passage in Genesis. This is life. Psalm 104, this was, this was why, Psalm 104 is a long psalm. Um, thank you so much for reading that so well. Thank you for the prayer, um, for leading us in that. Um, I actually wanted Psalm 104 read really just for one verse out of so many riches there, right? Um, just one verse in Psalm 104, it says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. Again, talking about the giving of the spirit as being the source of life. This is how the, the, the Bible talks about the spirit all the way through. Now, I want to be sure that we understand one important thing uh, in, this, in this passage that's, that's kind of easy to miss. Paul talks about the Spirit a lot in this passage. He also uses the word spiritual, right? You see that in verse 13? Um, uh, he says, we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, and then interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, it's really easy to misread this. Because nowadays, when we use the word spiritual, we, we tend to mean, you know, sort of something to do with the transcendent, right? Spirituality, right? Lots of people like to say that they're spiritual but not religious. When we talk about a spiritual person, we're usually talking about a person that has, you know, some sort of natural aptitude, some, some you know, higher, higher sensitivity uh, to, to the transcendent. That is not what Paul is talking about here. The word spirit, when he talks about the Holy Spirit, there the translators have done a fine job. They capitalize it. You know you're talking about the Holy Spirit, right? But the word spiritual is based on the same word. And everywhere in Paul's letters where he uses the word spiritual, it's always tied directly to the Holy Spirit. 
So a spiritual person for Paul, it has nothing to do with a characteristic of the person. A spiritual person for Paul is not someone that has this characteristic of higher sensitivity to some abstract transcendence. He's talking very specifically uh, about uh, people who have been changed and impacted in receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. So one of the, one of the commentators um, that I've been reading says this. It says, to be spiritual is not to draw upon an innate higher capacity of the human soul. It is to be moved, activated, and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, this fits perfectly with the argument that Paul's been making, right? He's been making this argument that doesn't leave any room for elitism among the Corinthians. What he's saying here, you know, those who are spiritual are not some kind of super-duper Christians uh, with a really high aptitude for recognizing the truth. They're ordinary Christians. They're all of us on whom the Spirit of God has been poured out. See, this is actually why Paul writes as though he's disappointed in some parts of this letter. He's saying, look, look I, I know you have all received the Holy Spirit. I was with you. I, I, I saw it. And what I'm, what I'm disappointed in is not that I thought that you were, you know, these super-duper Christians, and now you're falling short of my expectations. It's I know what you've received. And I know that because of what you've received, I know who you are. And you're not acting in accord with that. Here's why I think this matters for us. At the end of the day, when Paul talks about wisdom that is received in the person of the Holy Spirit, not because of a characteristic innate in us, but because of what we receive by God's grace, he's not talking about the kind of mastery of life that the Greeks were after. There is a place for mastery of life. There is a place for technique. Um, but that's not what Paul is really after here. He's not after, he's not talking about a greater competence that would give us more and more autonomy and more and more independence. He's almost talking about the exact opposite. If wisdom depends on the gift of the Holy Spirit, then it's not a matter of greater competence and independence, but of realizing more and more our dependence on the active, living presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The Spirit that helps us to understand God's Word the spirit that animates our life together, the spirit who promises to be present with us every time we gather in the name of Jesus, who hears our prayers. This, again, is not so much like having the map and the GPS, but knowing the Sherpa, right? There's a song that we sing called His Love Can Never Fail. Um, there's one verse in there that speaks perfectly to this. It says, I do not ask to see the way my feet will have to tread, but only that my soul may feed upon the living bread. 
Tis better far that I should walk by faith close to his side. I may not know the way I go, but oh, I know my guide. That's what Paul is talking about. That, for Paul, is what wisdom consists in. Why, why, why is it that that would be wisdom? Like I said, there is a place for mastery. There is a place for um, practical wisdom that helps you navigate life. If you read the Proverbs, they are full of, of that. The wisdom literature are very much geared towards giving you practical knowledge with which to navigate life. Why would wisdom begin with acknowledging our dependence and continuing on an ongoing basis to acknowledge our dependence on the Spirit poured out in us? I think it's because of this. If we understand wisdom as being a matter of independence and, and competence, right, of knowing all the answers, of having the right techniques, then what will inevitably happen is that you will encounter a situation that you don't know how to handle. Um, today is Father's Day, so we could use parenting as an example. I could read all the books about parenting. I could have all the techniques. Um, I could feel really confident that I've got the best expertise possible in raising my kids. The problem is that my kids are kids. They are real human beings. They are complex. And I will encounter a situation not covered in all of that technique. What happens next? If I've built my identity, if I've put all of my confidence on being independent and on having the right technique, then that moment is going to be a shot to the core of my identity. It will shake me. And, and where I go next kind of depends on my personality, right? Some of us get angry in that moment. Some of us sink into despair. Some of us laugh it off and pretend it's not happening, right? Um, but none of us are going to be able to act wisely in that moment, faced with something that we can't handle. What if instead your identity is built on your dependence, on your father? on a good father, on a good shepherd. If that's your identity, then you will be able to face the complicated situations. With an even temper, you will be able to be generous with your time. You won't succumb to fear. You won't succumb to anxiety. In short, you will be able to be wise. What, what, what Paul is saying here fits with what's in the Proverbs. If wisdom begins with the gift of the Spirit, it fits perfectly with what the Proverbs say, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It fits perfectly with the proverb. If, we, if there's one proverb that you've memorized at some point in your life, it's probably this one. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. That's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Don't lean on your own understanding. Instead, trust in the Lord. Acknowledge Him as the one that you need. Paul says that this delivers to us the mind of Christ. 
Uh, earlier he said he wanted us to be of one mind, and now we have that fleshed out. It's the mind of Christ that he has in mind. And what we're seeing here is that to have the mind of Christ is not simply to have more information. It is a changed life. What kind of freedom would you enjoy in your life if you were so confident of your status in Christ because of the heart of your Father revealed on Christ's cross for you? What kind of freedom would you enjoy if you were so confident of your status in Christ that you didn't need to seek status for yourself? If you were so confident of the loving care of your Heavenly Father that you could face the challenges and complexities of the real world we live in without fear. If you knew that because God is the creator and that he is not subject to created things, but created things are subject to him, that that means that not even the weakness of your own flesh can thwart his love and his purposes for you. There's a great collect in the Book of Common Prayer that includes this phrase, we, we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this life rest in your eternal changelessness. What we're talking about here is the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, right? An awe-filled orientation to God in all aspects of life that leads to obedience is how we've defined this. And, and I'm, I'm convinced that this is why Paul is determined to preach nothing but Christ crucified. This is, this is why he didn't come with eloquent rhetoric, right, and with clever technique. But he was determined. He knew that rhetoric and technique might be helpful, but it would not change the Corinthians, and it won't change you either. It won't change us. And that's why week after week we come back to this word to look, to cast our eyes again and again on the same thing that Paul is lifting up. Just this, Christ, crucified. Our crucified and risen Savior for us in order that we would worship and would be changed.